Hi, I'm Bree, and this is Calendar of Crime, where each week we examine a case from this week in history. Usually, Haley and I do these episodes together, but due to opposing vacation schedules, today I'm flying solo. In three days in July of 1989, four people were murdered across three states. Investigators were quickly able to connect the crimes and arrested a suspect in record time. But when a fifth victim was killed in another state while the number one suspect sat behind bars, it became apparent that investigators may have been overeager in their initial arrest. This case begins on Wednesday, July 19, 1989, when a customer went into the Darden Convenience Store in Garden City, Kansas, at about 1.20 in the morning and found it abandoned, with no clerk to be found. The customer called the police and reported it. There were no signs of a struggle at the Darden, but the lack of a clerk was suspicious and the police responded to investigate. They found that the cash register had been robbed and identified the missing clerk as 27-year-old Barbara Kochendorfer. Barbara had moved to Garden City from Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1985 and had only been a clerk at the Darden for two months. She was married and the mother of five young children, four sons and one daughter. Her purse was located at the store, untouched. About three hours later, an eerily similar second report was called in. A customer had entered a different convenience store on the opposite end of town, Coastal Mart, and encountered an identical scene. No sign of a struggle, missing clerk. Police responded to this scene and, again, the cash register had been robbed and the missing clerk's purse was untouched. This time, the clerk was identified as 28-year-old Mary Rains. Mary had moved to Garden City eight years prior and was active in her church as a Brownie Scout leader, as a substitute teacher, and as a volunteer for the Garden City School of Dance. Like Barbara, she hadn't been at her job for very long, about three months. She was married with three young children, two daughters and a son. Investigators took these missing women very seriously and called in 20 off-duty police officers to help in the search for Barbara and Mary. This is not a situation where they let too much time go. They were on it immediately. Unfortunately, it was already too late. At about 9 a.m., a citizen discovered a body in a ditch in Finney County, about 12 miles north of Garden City. She was identified as Mary Rains. She was found clothed but barefoot, lying face down in the mud. She had been shot twice in the back of her head. 25 caliber casings were found next to her body. Shortly before noon, officers discovered another body about three and a half miles away from Mary. She was identified as Barbara Kochendorfer. She was found completely nude. Dirt was found in the middle of her back as if the suspect had stood on her while he shot her. Salem cigarette butts were found next to her body. She had also been shot in the back of the head with a 25 caliber handgun. Garden City Police, Finney County Sheriff's Department, Kansas Bureau of Investigations agents, and Kansas Highway Patrol all worked together in this investigation. Initial reports said the two crimes were immediately thought to be connected and that they didn't know if the crimes were committed by a local or someone passing through, as Garden City is adjacent to US-50, which runs east to west through the country. Investigators used the times of the last transactions on the cash registers to determine when the women went missing. They determined that Barbara had been abducted sometime between midnight and 1.20 a.m. and that Mary was abducted sometime between 2.30 and 4.30 a.m. These were terrible crimes that put all of Garden City on edge, but it was only the beginning of a multi-state spree-killing madness. 
The following afternoon, about 36 hours after Mary had been abducted, 54-year-old E.P. Spurrier, better known as Pete, was shot execution style in the back of the head. This was in Pampa, Texas, a town located in the Texas Panhandle. He was found at about 2.20 p.m. on Thursday, July 20th, 1989, in the one-hour photo shop he owned with his wife. There is the least amount of information about this murder, and although the source material does say that this was also a robbery, I couldn't find any information regarding what was taken. Not being from Kansas or Texas, I had no idea how far away from Garden City Pampa is, so I mapped it, and it looks like at its quickest route, it's about 2 hours and 50 minutes, and at its longest, it's about 4 hours and 5 minutes. Uh, In other words, it was entirely reasonable to assume that Pete, Mary, and Barbara had all been killed by the same person. I do have to say, though, that I am pretty impressed with how quickly these cases were connected. In newspaper articles from the time, it's clear that the cases were all immediately connected, and it shows that there was a lot of quick thinking going on. It was 1989, so it wasn't like there was an online database that they were uploading these crimes to. This was just good old-fashioned police work. However, they were still a step behind the killer. One day after Pete's murder, at about 3 p.m. on July 21st, 1989, 31-year-old Gwendolyn Miller, better known as Gwen, was shot to death. Gwen was working at Dodson's Flower Shop in Ardmore, Oklahoma, which was owned by her father. Again, I went back to my map to see how far Ardmore, Oklahoma is from Pampa, Texas. This is a bit of a further drive, anywhere from 4 hours and 26 minutes to 4 hours and 48 minutes, but it was still easily accomplished in the 24 hours between Pete and Gwen's deaths. Gwen and two other women at the store, an employee named Joanne Bean and a customer named Mary Mannings, were at the flower shop when the suspect walked in to rob the store. Although all three were shot and Gwen died immediately, Joanne and Mary Mannings both survived. Joanne was actually able to call police after the shooting. She was able to crawl over to the counter and pull the phone down in order to call the police. She was sitting up, still holding the phone when they arrived. She told police that she had given the man money and then he had ordered them to the back room and told them to count to 100. They assumed he was leaving, but instead he shot them each in the back of the head. The handgun used was a 25 caliber handgun. Ardmore Medical Examiner Dr. Scott Maloney said about the shootings, quote, It looks like he regimented them into a corner of the building and shot them one at a time. Less than $100 was taken from the flower shop, and the gunman went through the women's purses, which was different from what had happened with Barbara and Mary in Kansas. The shop was located on a busy commercial street leading into Ardmore's central business area. It seemed as if the shooter was getting more and more chaotic and out of control in a very short period of time. Witnesses described the flower shop suspect as a man between 20 and 30 with a mustache, gold-rimmed glasses, and dark, sun-streaked hair. It's unclear if this description came from witnesses around the flower shop or if it came from the surviving victims of the shooting, but I'm inclined to guess it was the latter because Joanne ended up identifying the shooter in a photo lineup that same day. Joanne identified Michael Frank Green as the shooter. Texas and Oklahoma authorities put out an APB for him, and although Kansas authorities did not name their suspect, they also believed that all four killings were related. On July 22nd, Garden City Police Captain Ron Reardon said, quote, There is physical evidence linking all four murders. I can't say much more than that, but the evidence points that way. But I think we know exactly what evidence linked the murders. All four had been shot execution style in the back of the head, and within a day or two, the source material reported that ballistics tests revealed that the gun used in the Oklahoma shootings was the same as the gun used in Texas and Kansas. 
A warrant was issued in Garden City for theft of services for Green, not because of anything having to do with the murders, but because he had gotten work done on his car at a shop there and not paid for it early the week before, which also showed that he had been in Garden City, Kansas. So it definitely wasn't looking good for this guy. 37-year-old Green went to the emergency room in Lawton, Oklahoma on Sunday, July 23, 1989. He had gone to the emergency room due to back pain from an old injury. Police received an anonymous call that he was in the hospital and went in to arrest him shortly after 6 p.m. Green did not resist arrest. His car was towed to the police station and he was taken back to the Lawton Jail. Lawton is in between Ardmore and Pampa, Texas, although it is much closer to Ardmore. He was charged with first-degree murder, two counts of armed robbery, and two counts of assault with a deadly weapon with the intent to kill by Oklahoma authorities for the Ardmore shootings. In Texas, he was charged with capital murder for the murder of Pete. He was wanted for questioning in Kansas, but not yet charged. So everything was great. They had caught their suspect. Except, meanwhile, on the same day Green was being arrested in Oklahoma, July 23, 1989, 48-year-old Geraldine Valdez was shot and killed at J&T Mini Mart, a convenience store in Springer, New Mexico. She was shot twice in the back of the head. Someone in New Mexico had called in a description of the car seen at the scene of Geraldine's murder and roadblocks were set up. And back to my map for reference, Springer, New Mexico is an eight to nine hour drive from Ardmore, Oklahoma. Since this was two days after the Ardmore shootings, there had been plenty of time for someone to travel that far but when the number one suspect was already sitting in an Oklahoma jail cell, well, that's a problem. The car described at the scene of Geraldine's murder was stopped at one of the roadblocks about 35 miles away from the convenience store. A 28-year-old man, Greg Francis Braun, with Kansas plates on his car, was arrested 40 minutes after the murder. A handgun was visible on the passenger seat when he was taken into custody. Braun surrendered peaceably. The car was impounded and they waited on a search warrant to officially take the handgun into evidence and do ballistic testing on it. The handgun found in his car was a, yep, you guessed it, 25 caliber gun. Green appeared in court on Monday, July 24th, while authorities from Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas traveled to New Mexico to interview Braun. The Garden City Police Department said, quote, I was asked last night if Green was a strong suspect and I said yes, he was but now we're looking at a different set of circumstances. We just have to see what happens when we talk to the person in New Mexico. These are probably our best two leads. Green's father, Hank, said about his son, quote, he would give you the shirt off his back. He's never even had a weapon in the house. He's never liked them. He was always afraid the kids would get a hold of them. He's never done no physical harm to anyone. At 37, if he was that type of person, it would have shown up by now. Green was being held without bond, and a preliminary hearing in Oklahoma was set for September 28th. Police had not found a gun on him. Assistant District Attorney Gary Henry said prosecutors still believed the evidence against Green in the Ardmore case was good, stating that, quote, either Green is our guy or he's the unluckiest human being that ever lived. But literally within hours of Green's arrest, Braun was arrested and implicated himself in the Ardmore slang. His statement caused Ardmore authorities to rush to New Mexico, but when they arrived, Braun refused to talk to them. Braun told the New Mexico officers who arrested him, quote, You guys must be proud. You don't know what kind of famous criminal you caught. He also added to a deputy of his murdering spree that, quote, It wasn't as good as shooting craps in Vegas, but it was all right. Which is gross. Really gross. Braun's vehicle matched the exact description given by all the witnesses to the crimes. The handgun found in his car was the right caliber gun. 
Tennis shoes were also found that matched imprints found in the mud near Barbara's body. Salem cigarettes were found in Braun's car matching the butts found near Barbara's body. The evidence was flown to the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and analyzed against the evidence found at the crime scenes. Braun was arraigned in New Mexico on the same day Green was in court in Oklahoma, on Monday, July 24th, for an open charge of murder of Geraldine. New Mexico reserved the right to seek the death penalty. On Wednesday, July 26, 1989, Braun was charged with the Garden City murders. Braun was charged in Kansas with two counts of felony murder, aggravated robbery, and aggravated kidnapping. Meanwhile, prosecutors in Ardmore announced that they were dropping the charges against Green based in part because of preliminary ballistics tests done on Braun's gun and also because evidence had arisen, showing that Green could not have been at the Ardmore shooting scene because... Green was at a hospital in Wichita Falls, Texas on Friday, the day of the flower shop shootings. So to me, I don't know what in the actual fuck prosecutors in Oklahoma were thinking when they said the evidence against Green was good. Like, to me, it's super unclear what evidence they even had. I mean, I know they had the witness identifying him, but a witness ID is not a slam dunk. They hadn't found a gun on him. Now they had evidence that he had an alibi for the time of the murders, It just seems like they really jumped the gun when they arrested and charged him. Prosecutors in Oklahoma said they were waiting for final fingerprint and ballistic test results to come in before filing charges against Braun, which is probably the correct course of action, but also makes me think that they realized they had already fucked up once when they arrested and charged Green, and they didn't want to make the same mistake twice. By August 2nd, 1989, Green had been cleared as a suspect in all of the murders. Braun's fingerprint matched one found at the Pampa, Texas scene, and that was the last one to clear Green. Before Green was cleared, authorities were still trying to say that maybe Braun and Green had been working together, although there was no indication that the two men knew each other. To me, that absolutely looks like they were just trying to cover their asses. What would have happened if Braun hadn't been caught or hadn't committed another murder? This innocent man could have been convicted of these horrible crimes. Authorities would later claim the arrest of Michael Frank Green was a case of mistaken identity because the two men looked enough alike to be brothers, but I think that's a huge problem. For the most part, I think law enforcement did a good job with this case, especially those in Kansas, but this was a huge, glaring mistake. It's hard to tell from newspaper pictures of the time, but I wouldn't say that Green and Braun looked that much alike, not to mention the fact that Green was nine years older than Braun. It's just a bad look all around. So let's talk about Greg Braun. In high school, Braun was a popular football player, but by 10 years later, he had become erratic and had issues with drugs and alcohol, as well as a bad temper. He had been to rehab sometime in his late teens. He graduated from Wichita State University with a bachelor's degree in administration of justice in July of 1988, after attending classes for six years. He had previously been charged with aggravated assault in January of 1989 after threatening a woman with a 25 caliber handgun, of course. He also had convictions in Wichita for drunk driving, solicitation, and careless driving. On May 30th, 1989, Braun had thrown a coffee mug through a TV set at a bar at a Garden City Hilton. The manager, Eddie Parton, had gone to high school with Braun and said, quote, gosh, it just seems like he was very soft-spoken and just kind of kept to himself. But he also added that, quote, I wouldn't want to get in his way when he lost his temper. Braun had been banned from two local clubs due to outbursts. One was the Hilton Bar, and the other was a local bar called Grain Bin, which he was banned from in late June after getting into a fight. He had been living in Wichita after earning his degree in administration of justice, which, by the way, seems highly ironic, 
and he had returned to Garden City a few months prior. Randy Patterson was Braun's former best friend and said he was shocked by the news of Braun's arrest, although not entirely surprised, which seems like a double negative, but whatever. He said that Braun had become emotionally unstable and seemed to be heading down a dark path. He said he saw Braun driving in Garden City the morning after the murders there and waved, but Braun ignored him. It turns out that Braun was a classmate of Mary Raines' husband in high school, but it's unknown if he knew Mary prior to her murder. His father, Leland Braun, was a well-known Garden City criminal lawyer. His brother, Glenn Braun, was an Ellis County attorney. Braun had been living with his parents in Garden City and working at the S. Bar Ranch feed yard. His boss said he came in the day after the Garden City murders, picked up his paycheck, and said he wouldn't be back. Braun's brother Glenn said, quote, My folks are good people. They're not responsible for what my brother did. There are some people who want to blame them, but it's not their fault. He, on his own, for whatever sick, bizarre reason, did what he did. On August 10, 1989, Braun admitted in court in New Mexico to being guilty of the murder of Geraldine. It was a preliminary hearing to determine whether there was enough evidence to move forward when Braun unexpectedly confessed to the killing. He also confessed to stealing around $200 from the J&T Mini Mart. He was bound for trial on charges of first-degree murder and second-degree armed robbery and was to be arraigned within 20 days. Braun testified that he had been undergoing psychological counseling in Garden City for recurring violent dreams and that he had been using cocaine heavily in the month before the shooting specifically showing injection sites on his arms. A state weapons expert testified that the 25 caliber handgun confiscated from Braun was the same one that was used in Garden City and in Pampa. Prosecutors in Texas charged Braun with capital murder for Pete's case that same week. On Friday, August 18, 1989, Braun was charged with first-degree murder, two counts of shooting with intent to kill, and two counts of robbery with firearms in Oklahoma in connection with the Ardmore case. On December 28, 1989, because apparently he couldn't get enough and wanted more charges against him, Braun was charged with aggravated assault on a peace officer, assault by a prisoner, and possession of a deadly weapon by a prisoner after he threatened a jail administrator with a homemade knife in jail in New Mexico. His trial for the murder of Geraldine was set for early spring of 1990. After his trial in New Mexico, he was scheduled to be sent to Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas for subsequent trials in that order. On Thursday, April 26, 1990, Braun pleaded guilty but mentally ill in Geraldine's murder in New Mexico. In New Mexico, this means that the defendant was mentally ill but not legally insane, meaning that the defendant did not meet one or more of the three tests for insanity under the law. The case was turned over to the New Mexico Supreme Court to determine whether someone who pleaded guilty but mentally ill would be eligible for the death penalty. If he was declared ineligible for the death penalty, he would be sentenced to life in prison. If he was declared eligible, a jury would be selected to determine whether he would be sentenced to death or to life in prison. The jury would decide only on sentencing because Braun had pleaded guilty. There was no plea deal or reduction in charges. Braun just chose to plead guilty. He was deemed eligible, and it came out during the trial that he had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and substance use disorder. On September 20, 1991, Braun was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Geraldine and 15 years for the additional robbery charge. He would have to serve at least 30 years of his life sentence and six and a half years of his 15-year sentence before becoming eligible for parole, so 36 and a half years minimum. However, that was just the start. His next trial was to be held in Kansas. 
It's important to know at this point that if we go back to October of 1990, Braun made a confession at that time that gives us our only real insight into what he was thinking and the motive behind his crime spree. He stated that he had had no plans to kill the first time, but that he wanted to rob a convenience store to get money for cocaine. When the scarf slash towel he was wearing over his face, I've seen it reported as both, so I don't know which one is accurate, fell off during the commission of this robbery, he panicked and abducted Barbara. After driving around with her for a bit, he said that he realized that since she had seen his face, he couldn't let her go, and so he killed her. After he dumped her body where it was later discovered, he went and bought cocaine with the stolen money from the cash register, shot it up, and then felt a compulsion to kill again. That's when he abducted Mary and killed her. He said he went home and went to sleep after that, and when he woke up, he got in the car to continue his rampage. This is important to know because Braun pleaded not guilty to all charges in Kansas on December 6, 1991, while trying to have that 1990 confession suppressed from the trial. Ultimately, he was unsuccessful, but it lengthened the amount of time he spent in Kansas. See, there had been reports that Finney County attorneys had planned to get Braun in and out and would drop the kidnapping and robbery charges in exchange for a guilty plea to murder. Kansas doesn't have the death penalty, and the four states were working together to try to secure a death sentence for Braun, which meant he had to go to trial in Oklahoma and or Texas. Since he initially pleaded not guilty, they weren't able to get him to Oklahoma as rapidly as they wanted to. However, since his confession was ultimately deemed admissible, on April 30th, 1992, Braun pleaded no contest to the murders in Kansas and was sentenced to four life sentences, two for the murder charges and two for the kidnapping charges. He was sentenced to 15 to life for each of the robbery charges. They would be served consecutively, and he was scheduled to be transported back to New Mexico after sentencing. He was next extradited to Oklahoma to stand trial for the murder of Gwen Miller and the attempted murder of Joanne Bean and Mary Mannings. On August 23, 1993, Braun was sentenced to death in Oklahoma after he pleaded no contest in the death of Gwen Miller. He was also sentenced to two additional life terms for the attacks on Joanne and Mary Mannings. I couldn't find any sources that let me know definitively if Texas even bothered to extradite him and hold a trial, although some sources said he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison in Texas as well. While it probably doesn't really matter in the long run since he already had a death sentence, I hope he was held accountable for Pete's murder as well. There are automatic appeals before a person can be put to death, and Braun's lawyers went through each and every one. He sat on death row for seven years. All of his appeals had been exhausted by the year 2000, and an execution date had been set. The Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board held a clemency hearing for Braun on Tuesday, June 27, 2000, in Oklahoma City. Braun was represented by Benjamin McCuller and Jim Rowan. Rowan had been Braun's trial attorney. Braun's mental illness, specifically borderline personality disorder, was raised by his attorneys as an issue worthy of clemency. Braun did not attend the hearing. The board voted 4-0 to to deny a recommendation of clemency to the governor. Clemency hearings are standard for death row prisoners before their execution date, but it is extremely rare that someone is granted clemency. Since 1976, there have only been five clemencies granted in the state of Oklahoma. Greg Francis Braun was put to death by lethal injection at Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister. He was pronounced dead at 12.17 a.m. He was 39 years old. His execution was witnessed by 39 family members of the five people he had killed in 1989. Twelve of the witnesses watched the execution from a viewing room in the death chamber, while 27 watched through closed-circuit television. Braun had requested only one witness be present, a Catholic priest. 
Braun had asked his family members not to witness his execution. Braun was the 10th man put to death by the state of Oklahoma in the year 2000, and the 29th since the state resumed capital punishment in 1977. He was also the 55th person executed in the United States that year and the 653rd since the reinstatement of capital punishment. Dolores Spurrier, Pete's widow, didn't want to see the execution of Braun. She said, quote, I'll handle it better here in Pampa. I just want it over with. Her son, Bill Spurrier, did attend the execution and said, quote, The execution brought everything back like it was yesterday, and it's not only for me, but for my wife and my mother. He added that the execution brought him a sense of closure, stating that, quote, I know he'll never be able to commit another murder. Dolores said that she went to every one of Braun's trials and got to know relatives of the other victims. She said that, quote, I think everybody is just glad that it's going to happen. It will be some closure, but I don't think you would ever really get over it. All the families of the victims stayed in touch over the years and said that they had always planned to attend the execution, no matter how long it took. Dusty Miller, Gwen's husband, said, quote, I'm glad to get this over with. I feel sorry for him that he's chosen to take his life and do something like this. But I'm still very angry that he's taken my wife and my children's mother away. I can't forgive him tonight. Maybe I can sometime down the line. Bill Spurrier added that, quote, I feel very sorry for Braun's family, but they did get the opportunity to say goodbye, which I never got that opportunity. I had to say goodbye to my dad at the grave. Greg Braun's drug-fueled psychotic rampage over the course of five days in 1989 caused ripple effects and repercussions for so many people. His five victims left behind countless loved ones who still mourn their loss today. The only thing they can be thankful for is that he was stopped, and he'll never have the chance to hurt another person again. For all details and sources regarding this case, you can check the show notes or go to our website, calendarofcrime.com. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Calendar of Crime, and Haley will be here next week with a brand new case from That Week in History.